Welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. We're here with you on an extremely unusual Sunday off day, but it is an off day. And as we have set that as the template for this podcast, uh, I'm here. Uh, I'm Ben Godar, one of your hosts. And with me, as always, is my good friend, Ben Humphrey. Ben, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I feel kind of like uh, my frustration with the 2023 St. Louis Cardinals uh, was released with selling at the deadline. It yes. was, you know, like in the movie when they bring the corner in to call it, you know, or the it, <laughs> like, okay, they, they gave up. Time so of I death can, was <laughs> August 1st. 4 p.m. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's exactly right. Um, and so now it's just kind of more like a, a baseball curiosity thing um, yes. where it, you know, you can just kind of enjoy the things. It's a little bit easier to laugh at or enjoy the things that go well or are weird. Yeah. Um, even if they're bad for the Cardinals, uh, you can just kind of uh, bathe in baseball a little bit more without really caring you know, whether or not they lose, uh, you know, how well a specific player performs. Um, And so my, uh, my frustration level with the team is far, far lower. And baseball is much more enjoyable uh, after John Mosaloc and company threw in the white towel on the season and traded away uh, all the players who were on expiring contracts. And so um, I, I have found, you know, the last couple of weeks, I guess it's about a week and a half worth of games, uh, to be much more enjoyable, uh, than those that came before it. Yeah. Well, you know, at the beginning of Shawshank Redemption, right. Red warns that hope is a terrible thing. Right. And, and, <laughs> and that of course is the correct point of view. And, and we experienced that throughout the first part of the season. Now hope is dead and we have this great sense of relief. So um, I'm with you, Ben. Um, it's been a, been more relaxed uh, uh, since the trade deadline and been a very different experience uh, watching the Cardinals. And uh, I think we'll have a somewhat different podcast here over the second half of the, the season. I know you and I are going to hopefully find some more uh, interesting uh, and maybe uh, unusual topics to discuss, including, a, I think, a very fun draft we have coming up here today. Uh, but uh, rather than just belaboring the same kind of points or, you know, dissecting games that don't necessarily mean a lot. But before we get into that, Ben, uh what, what what have you learned over the last uh, not even a full week since our last off day? Uh, I have learned, and and I understand why. Uh, but I have learned that the the, the St. Louis media establishment uh, is more willing to criticize the front office, and this is a, a general rule, but like is more willing to criticize the front office than they are Adam Wainwright individually. And I understand why that is, right? Like, I love Adam Wainwright. He's built up a lot of goodwill. He's been a lot of fun to watch pitch and to just see, you know, he's just a nice guy who enjoys life and seems to be, you know, like a positive guy, uh, you know, and he just, he's a good he seems like a good person. I don't know Adam Wainwright personally. That's why he seems like a good person. Um, Right. And and so all of these things, it's just like when you're around Adam Wainwright, he was almost like the the Labrador retriever of the St. Louis Cardinals. Yes. Um, 
like uh, a mascot of the team, uh, but also a good player and uh, just a very good kind of standard bearer for the organization. And I think we as fans really enjoy him. And I think quite obviously the media does too. Um, but I, you know, on stltoday.com, they had a post from Ben Fredrickson this week where it was like, blame the front office, not Adam Wainwright or something like that. And we've discussed this before where it's like the defining mistake of the offseason was signing Adam Wainwright instead mm -hmm. of a better pitcher. And I understand all the sentimentality, especially with the way Bill DeWitt likes to bring back legacy players and, ha and have them achieve milestones as a Cardinal. If they go into the Hall of Fame, he wants them to be Cardinals. You know, you have that as well. But then also just Adam Wainwright, everything we, we all of those things. I can I can totally understand the human component of that decision, and I'm not faulting that part of it. I'm just saying I think that part won out, and as a result, and you made the point uh, last episode very well. They they painted themselves into a corner when it came to the rotation. After they signed Adam Wainwright, there was really no effective way for them. Uh, to upgrade the rotation because they had five players on guaranteed contracts who were starters. And um, and so, you know, I don't think you can blame Adam Wainwright for having age catch up with him. I don't think you can blame Adam Wainwright for wanting to keep on playing for sure. But the idea that you can finesse it where Adam Wainwright is not the problem and a symptom of the problem Right. Uh, I don't think you can do that. And I, I think that we just need to re recognize it for what it is. Yeah. And last night was be ugly um, and hard to watch. In fact, I just stopped. I stopped watching. I couldn't. I just couldn't. Uh, you know, I flipped back after he was out of the game, but I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, you, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I was just like, I can't. I can't do this. So it's it, and I we talked about it for like I'm almost. I'm, I'm, I have a very high level of confidence that he will not win 200 games this year. I mean, if you no. can't at least keep it close against the Royals, you know, what are your chances against other teams? Yeah. 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 I, well, and I'm, uh, I mean, you said you were watching last night. I, I, I wasn't, I couldn't even watch. I had the radio on and I was partly, um, it was out of curiosity just because, um, you know, they, they just such homers on the, on the radio call. And I feel like, especially for Adam Wainwright, whenever he's out there and I was just kind of morbidly curious, like, how are they going to spin this? And, um, they, uh, the, the spin was basically came in the form of dead air. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was just like, it was, you know, and it was painful to listen to because it was just kind of <laughs> like, you know, it was just basically like, well. There, uh, that one bounced in front of the plate. That, oh, oh, that one crushed to left field. That's a home run. And then like dead air until the next batters in the play. You know, I mean, they just there was just nothing to say, right? It was just, you know, because I mean, he was just. It, but to your point, I think part of that comes from um, whether it's the media or whether it's like fans on Twitter or just in general. I think many of us 
have a hard time having kind of nuanced conversations about these things. And, and some of it is, I think some of it's just human nature, but I think it's maybe exacerbated in the social media age where it's like, you're either for something or you're against something. And like, that's the level of nuance you're allowed to have. So it's like either you're, you're for Adam Wainwright or you're against Adam Wainwright. And I think obviously those of us who are fans love Adam Wainwright, <laughs> you know, like if you're a Cardinals fan, there's no way you can have experienced you know, the last 20 years and not just he's not not regard him as just an all time great Cardinal that you are forever going to look back on and kind of, you know, fondly remember all of his time there. But it is painful watching him out there. And it is kind of uh, just uh, really disturbing that there's no one in the organization that can, you know, step in and like take the ball and say, look, no, it's not happening. Like, you know, like, um, and, and, and people that people, uh, have such kind of, uh, difficulty even just kind of saying that like, yes, that should happen, you know, like, yeah, this is guy is an all time great, but he should not be out there anymore. You know, like that's not a especially nuanced thing to say, but it's just clearly what the situation is. Yeah. And you, it does does also circle back to and we've talked about this like probably since tony la Russa, it feels like no one and maybe yadier molina to an extent too maybe he right. was able to like supervise or manage adam wainwright a little bit yeah um but it but it has definitely felt like there's no one in the organization since la Russa left who can effectively kind of manage adam wainwright uh, whether it's Matheny or Schilt or Marmol, I don't think any of them even really were interested in it so much. Yeah. Um, but the front office as well is it seems to have it seems to go even all the way up uh, to the the higher levels uh, of management where they're they're not willing to step in and have that difficult conversation. Um, but then again, maybe they figure, you know, I our draft pick. Uh, gets higher when he pitches poorly and if he pitches well he might achieve a milestone that would be a deeply cynical uh, way to look at it but um you know that might be that might be the the reality of their their calculation as they uh, leave him in the rotation so yeah um but but, you know it's it's an unfortunate and it's gotten so bad like i honestly feel like and i still see people saying like oh i just want to see him get to 200 wins like i honestly don't because like it's 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 just painful and ugly, you know what I mean. So it's like uh, it, it feels like yeah, even if uh, you know the blind nut finds the squirrel and he he has one of these you know games that he has, and it just happens to be a game that the other team blows up even more, uh, you know, and the Cardinals score ten and they can leave him out there for five innings and. Uh, you know, due to the, uh, you know, antiquated rules of scoring in MLB and the garbage statistic that is the pitching win, they notch a pitching win for him. Like, I don't want to see that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what are those wins going to be like? Right. Like, yeah. it's there are games where the offense, like, if it happens, it's like he gave up five runs and in five innings and the offense happened to score eight in the first five innings. So they left him in, you know, yeah, like, right. Uh, you know, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like a, you know, like an early two thousands type pitching quote unquote win where, right. you know, you, you've got the balls flying all over the yard. 
And yeah, I, I guess this pitcher threw five innings and left with the lead. I guess right. we give him the win, you know. Or, or, it'll, or it'll be some other team at the end of the season that's also given up and is, you know, just doing a bullpen game because they don't care either, you know. So it's like, sure. Yeah, it, that 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 uh, that somehow does not flummox the Cardinals lineup, right? Like, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, I think, unfortunately, we keep learning that that's the way that the uh, the end of the season looks like it's going to go for uh, for Adam, Adam Wainwright. Um, then, the, you know, this week, in terms of what I learned, you know, I was actually kind of just peeking at, you know, as much as I say, I don't want to look at keep looking at what's wrong with this Cardinals team, or what's different about this Cardinals team, I can't help myself. And one thing that we talk about a lot, and, and it's something I hear you say very often is that, you know, over the course of the Mosaic tenure, one of the kind of defining things that the team has done is defined up replacement level. And um, and I know I've mentioned Russell Carlton's book, new book several times on here. And this is, a, again, a chapter in his book that he talks about, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, every team obviously uh, is going to have over the course of a season, you're going to have a certain number of players who are below replacement level, right? And one way to improve your team is just to have fewer players that are below replacement level. And uh, he happened to calculate in 2022, the average major league team had uh, 5.5 uh, negative, uh, you know, replacement value, uh, you know, like a negative 5.5 wins above replacement. Um, if you totaled up all of the kind of player value that was below replacement level. So, um, you know, if a team were able to eliminate all of those, right, you know, 5.5 wins above replacement level, that's like adding an all-star player to a team. So that gives you an idea that there is, it's pretty meaningful to do the kind of thing the Cardinals have done, which is define up that, you know, replacement value um, in the way that they have. And of course, if you look back historically, that's exactly what the Cardinals have done. So in 2022, the Cardinals had a, only had 3.9 wins that were, uh, you know, 3.9 below replacement value uh, contribution. If you go back to 2015, a very good Cardinals team, it was a 3.1 below. That happened to be exactly equal to Colton Wong's wins above replacement level that season, right? So um, they were basically a, you know, like a Colton Wong better than every other team, right? Like they, in terms of how they did that, um, you know, you compare that to uh, a team like uh, the Angels, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, and oh, I, I looked it up here somewhere. I don't even know if I wrote it down, but the, uh, oh yeah, the 2022 Angels were um, nine and a half games uh, had nine and a half negative, uh, you know, wins above replacement, which, you know, again, not surprising. That's why the Angels can have Shohei Otani and Mike Trout and be terrible, right? So this is something we know that the Cardinals have done. And so that was just one thing I got wondering about, hey, is that something they're failing at this year? Because they've done it so successfully. And it's actually not probably as of as of right now. And we know that that you know war is a accounting stat so it does continue to accumulate but as of when i calculated this earlier this week they had like a negative 2.6 so far in this season so kind of on track to be you know around where they have been like probably on the better end of the league so then i just kind of started wondering about uh you know wins above average right because remember replacement level that's like 
the level where you know below that and again it's kind of a hypothetical thing it doesn't exactly work out but but below that are guys that essentially are sub mlb level these are like triple a just you know infinitely replaceable type players you know average you're talking about like average quality mlb players well average is uh if you go to like the say the uh 20 uh 2022 the Cardinals uh, team had a 14.4 wins above average as a team. Okay. And you go back to 2015, they had 20.2 wins above average. Okay. Uh, this season, they're at a negative 1.3, right? Um, and you just, you look at the team and it's, it's just uh, just an absolute dearth of players that are above average and particularly on on the pitching side. So on the pitching side, the only players that are, you know, racking up basically at an above average level at this point that they haven't traded away are Miles Michaelis, Steven Matz, uh, Gallegos uh, and Jojo Romero. OK, so you know, that's, that's not great. And then um, you go over to the offensive side, things are a little better, but they don't have a single uh, outfielder that is grading out as above average. So Ben, I guess to me, the thing that I kind of learned from that was, you know, maybe this define up replacement level philosophy is still in place and still working, but they've kind of let that middle uh, of the team sag. And they've, they've just let that, um, you know, that that kind of overall quality of that kind of starting player really sag. And that feels about right to me, Ben, because we just think about how like with the starting pitching, you know, rather than feeling like they're trying to improve that starting pitching and get more guys that are, you know, like number two, number three type starters, it feels like they're trying to fill that rotation up with those number four, and number five starters. And you think about that outfield that they've just kind of been cycling through that same, you know, group of guys that just kind of don't seem to be getting the job done. I don't know, like when I look at those kind of numbers, it feels to me like it it, it, it it's in line with that. And it feels like maybe that's something they, they need to do going forward to to try to fix whatever this problem is this year i don't know does that make sense to you uh it does it makes a lot of sense and i think you know this exercise kind of confirms in a way what what we talked about and we were talking only about the rotation um but we said you know you have you have a choice and we framed it between marcus stroman and, and stephen math who has been yep. above average uh this year it, to be fair um, but our point was you need, you need high level innings in this rotation because you don't have any that are guaranteed. And, you know, Jack Flaherty has a hurt shoulder. You can't count on him being a top tier starter anymore. Mm-hmm. Adam Wainwright's getting older. You could not count on him. I don't think anyone foresaw this year from Adam Wainwright, but the best case scenario for Adam Wainwright, he's probably about average, right? Like maybe he's a little bit of above average and so um i i think this just confirms what the season uh it in a in a quantifiable way what how the season has gone where it's you know they had a bunch of guys that were average ish yeah and and they didn't get lucky and have any of those pitchers turn in like a an elite performance and have a very good year yeah and then then they also had some where you know, it was the opposite of having, you know, right. one of those kind of really great seasons. They have had poor ones. And yeah. so, um, and so when that happens, this is where you find yourself. And that's also the danger, right? Of 
constructing a rotation where you don't have much upside is mm -hmm. the downside risk can hurt you more because you don't have much counterweight in terms of an of a potential upside from players and so yeah. uh, i think those uh shall we say i guess i was gonna say the chickens came home to roost this year but maybe the the cardinals came home to roost <laughs> this year uh in the rotation with how they set it up so i think that's very interesting and it it's a it's a unique way of looking at uh how the team was built and then how yeah. the season has played out yeah and 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 why it fell apart for the Cardinals. Well, it is. And, and I'll be honest, to me, it's it's really more depressing, I think, than certain other ways the season could have gone wrong. And, you know, part of that defining up replacement level, another way, of course, to say that is, you know, they, they raise the floor, right? The, the, uh, but, uh, you know, if we look at this season and think in those kind of terms, you know, they, they did really raise the floor. I mean, we're, we're at the floor, right? <laughs> like this season kind of is the floor. Um, but the problem is there's just the, the ceiling is not very high. And that's, I think the scary thing when you look at this team is like, if you had a team, a season that went where you, you underperformed as much as the Cardinals have this season, what I think you would hope happened is you would say like, well, geez, I hope that it was because we had like major injuries to star players or like major underperformance, right? Those kind of things, because those could be things that it's like, that's a one year blip or you know what I mean? Like that's, were it not for that, we would have done this, but they really have not had significant injuries this season. That's scary, right? I mean, they're basically fielding the team that they expected to field. And on a per player basis, you know, like, I mean, is there, you know, I don't know that there's, you know, I don't think you see a lot of players who are really, really significantly different than maybe what you could have realistically expected from them. I mean, yes, I think in general, guys are kind of on the lower ends of their projections, but it's not like, you know, like Arenado, for example, his defense has really taken a step back. So his total value is lower than expected. But uh, you know what I mean? You're not seeing... I don't think a lot of guys that have just like completely cratered, they're just kind of at the lower end of where maybe you would have expected them to be. And that's, that's, I think, pretty scary. Yeah. And, and it's the, you know, earlier in the year, Mosaic was kind of trying to play the injury card. And I think, yeah, he was I know. And I was like, use... who, I was like, who's injured, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, Helsley, but like who else? But it was, you know, I, at that point in time, it was kind of like, well, Adam Wainwright was injured. Yeah, you know, and he, and he, yeah. <laughs> right. And he, I think he was trying to kind of trade off of the Wainwright name for what he was, you know, like it wasn't the current Adam Wainwright. Right. Um, but, but then they replaced him in the rotation with Jake Woodford, right. who is just not good. He's right. not average. Like he, right. who actually is, you know, is as bad or worse than Adam Wainwright. Yeah. Right. Like he's a replacement level pitcher. He's, yeah. you know what I mean? He's yeah. riding the Memphis shuttle. He's not really a starter, kind of a long reliever. Like, mm -hmm. and so it was, uh, and, and the, the scary thing though, Ben is like, I, you know, uh, Woodford pitched better than Wainwright has. Right. Yeah. So like even this idea that that injury, when they were kind of trying to use that as a talking point, like that injury had a, uh, you know, a negative impact on the start of the year, it actually may have ma may have made things less bad somehow, yep. like, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all righty. Well, with that, I think we're going to move into our main topic for today. And, you know, we've been talking so much about how bad this team is, and they are. Um, but I think we wanted to put a little bit more of a, a fun spin on it. And we also, I don't think, wanted to just harp on the idea that this is the only time the Cardinals have ever been bad. So uh, Ben and I are going to draft uh, the worst Cardinals players we possibly can. So we're stretching back throughout all St. Louis history here. Um, and we're, we're going we're gonna to draft the worst players we can. Ben, I think, did we discuss five? I feel like at one point we threw that out as the number of drafts picks we were going to make. Did that, did, did that sound right or did I just make that up in my head? Uh, I think we were going to do a five-round draft. Yes. Okay, so, so, so we'll, do it. we'll do a five-round draft. There's no rules here. It, I mean, it's only five players anyway, so you don't have to fill any certain positions. We're just going for basically the five worst picks we can possibly make. Um, ben, uh, let's see. I'm going to... Um, we. we uh, I'm, I'm going to do kind of an odd or even number here. I'm holding up. If you want to, you want to guess odd or even uh, for, for first pick. Uh, I will choose odd. Oh, it was actually even Ben. So, all right. So I'm, you get the first overall pick. I have taken the first overall pick. We had some concern that we might have a few overlaps here. So I am going to go with the one that I was concerned you might have. Um, so Ben with the, the first pick of the worst Cardinals draft. Um, I'm going to take pitcher Steve Dixon. Did you have this on your list? I, I I had looked at Steve Dixon, but I zeroed in on another pitcher for my first overall pick. Um, okay. That, that, that I'm sure our listeners will appreciate, uh, but I don't want to steal Mr. Dixon's thunder. So uh, please proceed with uh, explaining your rationale for the pick. Well, Steve Dixon is probably not a name that that fans remember, and I'll be honest, not really a name that I especially remembered. It was more of a a, a trip down a horror memory lane as I uh, uh, surfed his baseball reference page. So, um, you know, if if you sort uh, pitchers that have ever pitched for the Cardinals, and you look for you know like just your all of your basic kind of like worst pitching statistics and things like that. Um, you know, uh, infinite ERA, things like that, right? You'll find all kinds of like short timers, you know, who maybe made like one appearance and things like that. So you get into a real nether region of like, how do I define who actually is the worst, you know? Because like a guy who maybe, you know, came up, pitched in one game and didn't get anybody out. Well, that's bad, but it's also just not that much exposure. So as I sorted through all of these guys, I really felt Steve Dixon asserted himself as the, the worst performance um, as a pitcher in Cardinals history. So let me give you some of the, the stats here on, on Steve Dixon. Uh, Steve Dixon pitched in 1993 and 1994. Uh, he pitched uh, four games in 93, uh, two games in 94. So that's a total of six games. Across those six games, uh, he had five innings pitched. Uh, he faced 38 batters. Uh, during those five games. So uh, that would be a 7.6 batters per inning, Ben, um, which is not, that's not great. Um, uh, during those five innings pitched, um, he gave up a total of 10 hits and 13 walks. Um, also not great numbers. Um, uh, only one home run though. So I guess we could say he limited the damage somewhat. Um, <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, 
he also had uh, three strikeouts over those five innings pitch. And I would like to point this out because this is a very good uh, example of why you always want to use strikeout percentage and not strikeouts per nine. Um, I, I think I think Fangraphs or somebody should probably put Steve Dixon like on a page for when they explain that to folks. Um, so anyway, uh, all of that was good for a, a negative uh, 0.8 wins above replacement so that's essentially like he essentially lost an entire baseball game um uh over just uh you know a total of five innings pitched um so anyway i thought that was just a spectacular amount of bad pitching um you know the fact that it was you know six games he you know was able to do that in over two seasons i thought that was pretty impressive um just a little bit of biographical information mr dixon was drafted by the Cardinals in the 31st round of the 1989 MLB amateur draft. And uh, he came out of Paducah Community College. So anyway, those are all of my favorite facts about Steve Dixon, my uh, number one pick. All right. So uh, with my number one pick, I am going to choose uh, left-hander, Ricky Horton uh, as one of the worst Cardinals in history. Um, and Ben has instructed us not to use uh, K or walks per nine. Um, so oh, I'm no, gonna, no, I'm just, no, you use whatever you want. I, use whatever you want. Oh, no, but I, I still, uh, he was of an era when they still use those. And, oh, yes. You, you know, I, we grew up with those numbers. It's not like we don't know what they mean. Um, it's just if you're bad and you give up a lot of hits, you yeah. can have more Ks per nine than if you're good and you don't give up hits or walks, right? Because right? you face more batters and you get more of an opportunity, which is just the general rule for why you want to use percentage because it's out of all the batters you face as as opposed to the number of uh, inning or per nine innings, which also is an absurd stat because no one, hardly anyone throws nine innings anymore. Um, but I wanted to get into uh, with with Horton, um, with the K per nine and batted balls per nine, uh, he is he he is terrible, and he was particularly terrible uh, in 1988 when he allowed uh, overall he had 2.74 K per nine and 2.89 walks per nine, <laughs> and for his career he had 4.26 strikeouts per nine and uh, 2.97 walks per nine. And he's just uh, a terrible pitcher. If we want to use those stats, uh, even adjusting for uh, percentage faced in 88, he struck out 7% of the batters he faced and walked 7.4% of the batters he faced for his career. It was 112 K's per or uh, 11.2 K percentage and a 7.8 walk percentage. Um, and the the funny thing though is that uh, throughout all of this, he had roughly a league average ERA, which relievers tend to have lower uh, lower ERA than uh, starters. So still, um, but he was just a a terrible pitcher. And by the end, they just uh, teams did not really use him um, much uh, towards the end of his career. 
uh, in 88, he pitched for the, the White Sox. He, that wasn't with the Cardinals that he did those terrible things, but he pitched with the White Sox and the Dodgers. And then in 89, uh, the Cardinals uh, picked him back up again, which is and then he, he finished out his career uh, as a Cardinal in 1990 uh, when he had uh, 3.86 K per nine and 4.71 walks per nine uh that's seven point uh or excuse me that's 9.3 percent k percentage 11.4 percent walk percentage so i he's just uh he's a terrible pitcher um who how he stayed in the majors that's really a testament to how little bullpens were used in the 80s right like you just had guys uh you know and he had a he had a handful of starts i, I shouldn't minimize that but like you know, he was kind of like the Jake Woodford of his era, uh, in a way, except he was left-handed. And, um, and so when you hear him talking on the radio and he has no idea what he's talking about, it's because he was terrible at baseball. He didn't play much and he just doesn't know much about the game. And so he also, in my mind, rises to be a number one pick because of how unlistenable he has made the KMOX broadcast. I mean, he is legitimately this whole season, Ben, in most of last year, I listened to the opposition's radio broadcast, and then I'll I'll circle back and do like like maybe one Cardinals broadcast a game per series. And uh, after this experiment over the last two years, I can safely tell people uh, that Ricky Horton is the worst radio broadcaster in Major League Baseball that I have heard, and it is an embarrassment that he has taken over for Mike Shannon. And is in the same booth that Jack Buck was, an absolute embarrassment. And uh, and normally this time of year, I like to circle back to the radio broadcast, especially when Mike Shannon was calling it. But this year, it, it just it raises my blood pressure because he's so grating and terrible. Um, and so yeah. that pushed him to the number one overall pick. He is the worst Cardinal in history because uh, because he's a terrible pitcher. And he is somehow an even worse broadcaster. Well, that's a that's a fantastic pick, Ben. And by the way, last night, uh, the uh, last night as we recorded this, uh, the Royals used an opener in the game. And I mentioned I listened to the radio broadcast. And on the radio, uh, he said uh, that uh, he said, "Oh, you know, the the starting pitcher was listed as an opener, and then this the second pitcher was listed as the bulk pitcher." And he said, "No, that's the first time I've ever heard that term, the bulk pitcher, which of course is a term that's been used for many years now for teams that do, that <laughs> yes. do use an opener." And Ricky Horton is paid to uh, you know inform everyone who listens to the broadcast about baseball. Um, just to your point about how terrible he is, but uh, anyway, we've got other terrible players. To to get to here, Ben. So I don't want to stay on that for too long. So with my second pick, Ben, you know, there's a lot of ways that people can be terrible. And that's one thing I really tried to do here is branch out and think about a lot of ways players can be terrible. And um, look, I one thing I, I just got thinking about is I got thinking, who is, who is the fattest player that has ever played for the Cardinals? Okay. Now, look, I'm not trying to fat shame or anything here. Obviously, this is not a body issue thing, but these are professional athletes. So this does become a little bit of a, of a you know, that's a challenge to their performance. Also, I was just really curious to look it up, right? So um, 
uh, and thanks to baseball reference, of course, this is something you can look up. So um, I was really interested in, I felt like BMI was probably the best way to um, uh, look at this, Ben. Um, although obviously BMI is problematic and a lot of, you know, research suggests it's not really the best measure of health, but, you know, you can't just use raw weight, of course, you know, because you got differences in height and everything. Uh, ben, did you know that in 1886, the uh the the cardinals uh, who of course were not called the cardinals yet had a catcher named uh jumbo harding did you know that ben i did not but what a wonderful name well the great thing about you know ball players in the you know uh late 19th and early 20th century is their nickname really told you what to expect <laughs> yes <laughs> so i did so as as you know when i when i sorted this list by weight and i saw a guy near the top from the from 1886 named Jumbo, I thought like, okay, <laughs> this is this I, I I know this is one of my guys. So so Jumbo Harding was five foot nine and weighed 213 pounds. Now 213 pounds in 1886, that was a that was a big boy. Um, uh, anyway, he put. Can you guess what position he played, Ben? Well, I I would think catcher. You are correct. He was a catcher. Uh, uh, he only had three at bats, so not, didn't play very long. And Hey, to his credit, uh, he had one hit and one RBI. So he had a career, uh, 1000 OPS and 206 OPS plus. So, uh, um, you know, great, great career line for Jumbo Harding. Um, but, uh, uh 31.5 BMI. So pretty, uh, you know, pretty hefty, uh, BMI right there. Not the biggest BMI though, uh, in, in Cardinals history. Um, that that I could track down. Uh, some people, I'm sure, are thinking of Jonathan Broxton. Were you thinking of Jonathan Broxton, Ben? I I would have thought he would have been pretty high up there, but he was a pretty tall guy. Um, was, so that might throw off the BMI rating there. A he was bit. a tall guy, 6'4", 285, 34.7 BMI. Okay. So big number there. Uh, also, I almost felt like we need to asterisk pitchers out of this because you don't need to be an athlete to be a pitcher anyway. So like um but but uh but jonathan broxton biggest interestingly among pitchers uh moving back to position players another name i thought folks might be thinking of matt adams uh big mayonnaise yes, yes. right yes big mayo big mayo himself <laughs> big mayo six foot three 263 by the way i'm going with listed numbers on these we all know that those can be fudged but let's be honest they're usually fudged in the in the player's favor so if yes. anything these are probably uh you know uh favorable so uh 32.9 bmi for matt adams okay so a uh, little little uh, uh above jumbo harding on our position player list there um i've got two more position players though that that move even further up the scales ben uh above matt adams uh i have another first baseman of more recent vintage can you guess who that is another first baseman of more recent vintage it's who a, is of, bigger of, of extremely recent vintage oh of extremely recent vintage um i mean i don't know what luke and baker's well in at you just that guessed, would be you my just guess. guessed it. <laughs> luke and baker's listed at 64280 wow yeah yeah I would not have guessed that. I mean, he looks like that's uh, you know, they always say muscle weighs more than fat. I would think that's a lot of muscle. 
You know, uh, I didn't really play football seriously. Um, I didn't play after middle school, but I did play a little bit of defensive end in middle school. Um, I don't want to see uh, Luke and Baker like uh, pulling and coming around the end to block me. I'm going to tell you that right now. So, um, right, Luke right. And, <laughs> Luke and Baker, six foot four, two eighty. That's a thirty four point one BMI. So, um, so we're uh, we're we're all we're we're in the uh, we're in the obese uh, you know range right now again by BMI, which is very problematic. I'm not going to argue on this. I don't you know nutritionists out there, please don't um, you know uh, tweet the show. But we have not hit the largest Cardinals BMI yet. We have one larger out there. Do you, any guesses? This and this is a this is a bit of a deep cut. It's a recent player, relatively recent player, but it's kind of a deep cut. Do you, do you any any guess? Um, a relatively recent player. Um, man, I don't know. I. Uh, I was I was going to say like I don't know was Pedro Guerrero fatter than I remember him, but the those those uniforms didn't really allow for that type of thing. You no, know, they were and, so tight fitting. And the other thing is like we're we're all we're so much fatter now than we ever were, right? So like it yes. all it all skews much more recent, and that's why a, that's why a Jumbo Harding really stands out, right? Like a guy in the 1880s really had to be doing something to make this list, right? <laughs> like, yes. So. Uh, Topping the list uh, in terms of Cardinals BMI, and therefore my my next pick in our draft, Brian Pena. Uh, oh, that's I would not have guessed that, but that does not surprise me. Yeah, Brian Pena, uh, and this is what so two hundred and forty pounds, but you know what his listed height was five foot nine. Wow, Ooh, I didn't know yeah. he was that short either. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. So that's a 35.4 BMI. That bumps him up into class two obesity. That's pretty, that's, that's like, uh, that's not great. And for a professional athlete, that's really something to move that far down the, like, the, you know, the, the chart there. So, um, and yet he played a 12 year MLB career, only nine games with St. Louis in his final season. Um, and he amassed a 0.2 wins above replacement over his career. So um, I am focused completely on body issues and weight here, but I just thought for interest's sake, Brian Pena. And again, setting that aside, Brian Pena was a completely garbage backup catcher. So he still absolutely belongs on our list of uh, terrible Cardinals to draft here. Uh, you got to think knee replacements in his future, don't you? Oof. Yeah, I would think the day after he retired. Well, if they, if they, if they would move, move forward with the procedure, given his weight, you never know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. So anyway, Ben, that was my, uh, that, that was my, uh, my number two pick was, uh, was Brian Pena. Uh, with my number two pick, I'm going to stick with the portly type of player. <laughs> um, and I am going to select with that pick Ty Wigginton. Oh yeah. Um, I thought that might, I thought, who, I, I thought that might be a name we heard today. Yes. Uh, and and I, I kind of want to lay the backdrop here. And you were saying, you know, we can think of different ways to kind of categorize bad players. And I, I think I have already done that with including broadcaster performance in, in with player performance. But this one uh, really, I feel like, is uh, just a, a bad decision by the front office that manifested itself in just an absolutely terrible season for a player. 
And I, I'm going to go through here really quick. Weighted runs created plus uh, is based on the run value of every event a batter has. And then it's park adjusted and put on a scale of 100. So every percentage point over 100 is a percentage point better than average. Every percentage point below 100 is a percentage point worse than average. And so uh, Ty Wigginton, before he came to play his home games in the pitcher-friendly Bush Stadium, in 2009, he played in Baltimore. In 2010, he played in Baltimore. In 2011, he played in Colorado. In 2012, he played in Philadelphia. All of those places, hitters parks, right, Ben? Mm-hmm. Pretty, yes. pretty good hitters parks. Yes, absolutely. So uh, by weighted runs created plus, uh, these are the numbers he put up in those seasons. 84, so 16 percentage points worse than average. Uh, 93, seven percentage points worse. 85, which is 15 percentage points worse. And 87, 13 percentage points worse than average. So naturally, who did John Mosaloc and Mike Matheny target as their right-handed bench bat for the 2013 club? Uh, Ty Wigginton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he... Uh, he amassed uh, only 63 played appearances, uh, appeared in 47 games at the age of 35, struck out 30% of the time, uh, had a 158 batting average, a 238 on base percentage, and a 193 slugging percentage, uh, which worked out to a 0.035 isolated power, which is basically slugging, but you take out all the singles. So our right-handed bench bat has a .035 isolated power. Virtually no extra base hits there. Uh, He did not hit a home run. He had a 197 weighted on base average. And for the St. Louis Cardinals, he had an 18 weighted runs created plus. Uh, He was also a terrible defender. So you add all of this together and you have minus 0.6 F war uh, for the 2013 season before they finally cut him loose. And uh, he is one of the all-time worst Cardinals because that's a, a quite bad performance in not much time and really makes him a, a – not that you would really expect it to be that bad, but the decision-making process there is like, well, you know, he's been between, you know, like 16 and 7% worse than league average hitting in all these hitter-friendly – parks let's bring him to bush you know like what a terrible choice and it uh it it somehow went worse than you would expect it to uh before the cardinals pulled the plug on the experiment yeah you know and i feel like we could almost have an entire separate draft or at least a subcategory of like uh uh proovy veteran players that mike Matheny <laughs> brought in <laughs> yes or la Russa for that matter like yeah, you know you yeah. could yeah yeah uh, you could find a lot of those yeah yeah many 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 of them and uh, all of which uh, all of which went uh, uh went, went very very poorly so <sighs> all right ben well um so uh, i'm gonna go with uh i'm gonna go with another deep cut here ben uh i'm gonna go with uh uh eddie phillips uh Eddie Phillips is a guy, I wrote about him way back uh, at Viva Alberto. So you may remember this, this piece. Um, and this is a guy who, I, um, it was shortly after I think I started writing there. And my whole premise when I started this was, I was kind of wondering, have the Cardinals ever had a Moonlight Graham type player? 
um, you yeah. know, who like didn't get into a game. So I, I sort of like checked the, you know, just check the statistical record for, you know, guys who maybe were, and of course in, in field of moonlight Graham, uh, you know, character in field of dreams and actually based on a real, uh, actual player as well. Um, who in, in the, in the movie, in the book, uh, is, uh, goes in as a defensive replacement in a game, um, but never gets to bat and then never is back in the majors again. So I sort of wondered, well, have the Cardinals ever had anyone like that? And the the player that I found um, kind of blew my mind. So this Eddie Phillips was a position player who they brought up uh, during a September roster expansion in 1953. Um, he appeared in nine games uh and he's a he was an, an outfielder uh with zero plate appearances um now the record uh the most any other player had ever any other position player appeared in a game with no plate appearances was two so i was like how on earth was like how do you get into nine games with no plate appearances and of course it turned out they used him only as a designated pinch runner. So this was kind of like, uh, he'd been several years in the minor leagues and they called him up this one September and they just, for nine games, they they put him in just as like a, a pinch runner late in games. And so he, he pinch ran and then they sent him back to the minors the next season and they never called him up again. So it's kind of a bittersweet tale. You know, he got, he came up, he mm -hmm. got a, he got a taste of the majors. Um, you know, uh, was it the, you know, greatest time of his life? Was it the time of his life that kind of, you know, caused him pain because he was almost there and he never got back? I don't know. There's some complex feelings there, Ben. Um, but, you know, if we're really talking about, you know, we're, we're drafting a, you know, like worst, least productive kind of Cardinals players. I mean, can you be less productive than your entire career was you were literally only used to pinch run i mean they they use pitchers to pinch run ben like, <laughs> yeah. they, they put michael walker in to pinch run sometimes so like <laughs> you know like that's 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 what you were used for and that is that is all that eddie phillips was ever used for um and very much a unicorn not just in the cardinals but in like the whole of professional baseball history for that so so i'm taking eddie phillips with my with my third pick uh, my third pick, uh, I am going to cheat. Uh, and I, I had not orig originally intended to do this. Um, I was researching a specific player who I had intended to pick and I'm, I'm going to use with this pick, but I'm, I'm going to have, I'm going to add a throw in, uh, to the pick. Okay. Okay. And, and the reason that I'm going to have a throw in here is, um, you know, I used. I, I was just trying to to provide context because, um, you know, you just talked about kind of the the veteran proviness that uh, some managers like. Yes. And uh, there there is uh, a special type of of gritty veteran proviness that Tony Larusa liked, and I always felt that no one better exemplified it than Aaron Miles. Ooh, uh, Aaron yeah. Miles also is the embodiment of a dynamic that I find particularly grating. And at Viva Alberto, I dubbed it the, the dull utility knife. 
okay and, and uh, I believe I kind of fleshed it out like you know the the knife is dull the file is smooth the scissors can't, can't cut and the toothpick is dirty <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so what I mean is they're not really they are not of utility when they're in the field they just have a glove that and stand in a position and will run after the ball when it's hit. They don't field the position particularly well. And and Aaron Miles was one of those types of players, uh, not really a very skilled defender, just overall very limited. Okay. And so uh, while I was doing that, I, I searched, I, you know, because Aaron Miles, uh, you know, he's played in a lot of games. He has a, a lot of plate appearances. And I was like, you know, he, he was very not good uh, for quite a long time and I wanted to see so I sorted by qualified hitters and he uh, using that sorting mechanism uh, he came in on Fangraph's war as having the sixth lowest F war among Cardinals hitters um, and do you know who number five was okay so he had the sixth lowest F war among Cardinals hitters of, of all time the fifth lowest, yeah. I'm going to guess, is Jordan Walker. Uh, well, no, no, because he doesn't have the requisite uh, oh. amount of plate appearances. Because these are guys, uh, everyone on this list has more than 1,000 plate appearances. Oh, okay. okay. So these are guys who are in, you know, multiple year careers. Okay. Uh, number five on the list was Daniel Descalzo. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so, so, so it was, it was another, uh, and, and then, and then was it Greg Garcia after that? <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't think he, I, I don't think he got enough playing time as a Cardinal. I think maybe if we included his Padres it, it, uh, career uh, where I believe he wound up uh, for a year or two, uh, he, he might. Um, but so uh, Daniel Descalzo was 0.7 FR uh, overall. Aaron Miles was 0. 0.9. Um, and and their Descalzo walked a little bit more and struck out a little bit more, but they're surprisingly similar players because Descalzo hit for a little more power. Uh, Miles had a higher batting average and therefore a higher on base percentage. Uh, but for their careers, Descalzo had an 81 weighted runs created plus, and Aaron Miles has an 82 weighted runs created plus. <laughs> Uh, both were comfortably below average as defenders, though Descalzo was worse uh, overall than Miles. Um, oh. But Descalzo made up for it a little bit on the base paths. He was a much better base runner uh, than Miles. Not that he was particularly good, um, just Miles was, uh, you know, very just kind of meh as a base runner. And so, you know, these are guys where. They're bench players, right? The Cardinals gave Descalzo that run at second base in 2012 uh, after he lit up the Texas League and was okay in Memphis, and they wanted to see what they had. Um, and and uh, they, they went away from that um, after that. But uh, he was, you know, a bench utility player. But neither one of these guys were really had much utility. They're both pretty close they're below average players who are pretty close to replacement level for their careers. Um, and it, they're sort of, I feel like they're, they're now callbacks to a different era because, you know, players like this, I think are much more likely to be replaced uh, by younger players who are better in this day and age or who have the potential to be better where, 
you know what I mean? Teams look at these kind of dull utility knife types who don't have a very good bat, and they're like, why don't we just use this other young guy who uh, and see what they can do because there's more upside there. And also, as we've talked about, with the rise of, you know, kind of the Los Angeles Dodgers second baseman who can do everything uh, type player, I feel like the old not very good utility guy who's gritty and all of that uh, is kind of going by the wayside. And so I wanted to group these two together with my pick because I feel like they're emblematic of that type of player who has traditionally been overrated by uh, capital B baseball, capital M men like Tony LaRussa and Mike Matheny. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Excellent. Excellent pick and, and great callback to some of those guys. I will say, if you're ever in a hotel room that's being robbed, you do want Aaron Miles <laughs> on your side. That, that is a, very true, and that is an amazing story. Uh, if folks have not heard of it or uh, want to refresh their recollection of it, I would Google uh, Aaron Miles' hotel hostage situation. Uh, there was a good article on ESPN about it. Uh, gosh, probably 20 years ago now that I think about it. Right. So it might still be on the internet. I, I, I don't know, but... Um, it's a it's a very good tale that is worth reading uh, in its entirety. Yeah, or if you're ever in a bar with Morgan Ensberg, just buy him a drink and ask him to to, yes. uh, to, <laughs> to give, give you give you the the real story. Um, all right, Ben. So my uh, we're on our fourth pick here, I believe. Yes. My, my fourth pick is a uh, uh, pitcher, John uh, um, uh, Daquisito or Daquisto. I may I may be pronouncing it wrong. Uh, are you familiar with uh, with with uh, John? I am not. Please tell me about him. Well, John, uh, John only pitched one year for the Cardinals in uh, 1977, um, but he did have a 10 year major league career. Um, it didn't pitch much for the Cardinals. This was towards the back end of his career. He uh, he only threw 8.1 innings that season, uh, 4.32 um, ERA, um, and over his 10 year career. Uh, you know, a long enough career, but he was worth a negative one wins above replacement for his entire career. So, yeah, you know, a long, uh, you know, a, a completely respectable 10 year career, but not a very good pitcher. Um, so you're probably thinking, why is Ben choosing this pitcher I've never heard of who only pitched one year for the Cardinals and whose statistics were not good, but but certainly don't seem to be nearly among the worst. Is that is that what you're thinking, Ben? Yes. Well, after he retired from baseball, uh, John became uh, an investment advisor. Uh, and in 1996, uh, he was uh, sentenced to uh, five years and three months in prison uh, for trying to pass off a forged $200 million um, certificate of deposit. And he was also indicted in 1998 on charges of defrauding investors uh, of approximately uh, $7 million. So. In short, uh, John was running a Ponzi scheme, Ben, and and uh, <laughs> a pretty a pretty significant one. Um, and uh, he uh, admitted to using uh, 1.3 million in uh, investor funds to buy racehorses, luxury cars, property, and uh, part interest in a Mexican baseball team. Oh wow! Yeah, so these were uh, these were all things he had done. Um, in the reporting I could find, it was all, uh, you know, promising like a, a rapid uh, investment return. I couldn't find exactly what he was promising, but it was a very classic, like, you know, Ponzi scheme kind of, yeah. kind of setup that uh, 
that John was running. And so, um, you know, I feel, again, broadening our like worst Cardinals of all time. I thought, you know, performance on the field, clearly important. But, you know, I think, you know, defrauding people and running a Ponzi scheme, I thought pretty, pretty scummy behavior. So, um, so John, John's on my list. Uh, and John is my fourth pick. Uh, with my fourth pick, uh, I am going to uh, go with a player uh, who I I just feel as a member, a card carrying member of the best fans in baseball. Uh, I feel like he more than anyone else uh, did not gel with the St. Louis Cardinals fan base. Uh, and that person is Tino Martinez. Um, and I, I am I am choosing him as one of the worst St. Louis Cardinals ever. Um, it, it was probably not fair for Tino. You know, he he basically took over for uh, Mark McGuire, um, you know, as the heir uh, for the, the home run champion who was beloved uh, at the time and I think is still beloved. Now, um, he was he left the New York Yankees where Tino Martinez was beloved, and that was, of course, those great Yankees dynasty teams. And he was a consistently uh, above average hitter. Uh, you know, he had a he had some down seasons early in his career, and then uh, one in the year 2000 when you know the Yankees overall were good. But you know, he was an averageish averageish overall player, maybe below average at the time. So I think we might have had. Uh, unfair expectations for him. Uh, and he had a, a 104 uh, weighted runs created plus with the Cardinals. Um, however, he was terrible defensively. And, you know, getting back to our posi- qualified qualifying position player rankings, um, he had the 17th lowest FWAR uh, in Cardinal history amongst qualified position players um and so his defense was so bad it it felt like a betrayal of the cardinal way his attitude was somehow even worse uh making matters uh somehow worse still uh the choice you know essentially blocked albert pujols with his bad throwing arm uh from playing first base so the decision to sign him blocked pujols uh, he's definitely a veteran provenist type of guy because he was obviously on the downward slope of his career. Uh, and finally, uh, after the 2003 season that went awry for the Cardinals, uh, Jockety traded him to the Devil Rays where he had a, a bounce back season before heading back to New York. Um, and of course, that 2004 season, while he was playing his trade in Tampa, Albert Pujols uh, cemented himself as an all-time great player at first base for the Cardinals as a member of the MV3. So uh, I'm going to use Chino Martinez uh, because he also, for me, uh, really kind of embodied the frustration of the 2003 uh, season with the Cardinals where uh, they just underperformed. And granted, it was more because of pitching, but he just, he seemed frustrated to be there in the way that we fans were to watch the team play yeah and it always just kind of rubbed me the wrong way so i'm going to use my fourth pick on tino martinez i think that's a great pick and i think for anybody who's listening who doesn't remember it i I think the way that i would explain it is 
if you imagine the way that Wilson Contreras came in this season and the the deference that he showed to Yadier Molina and the the kind of like the the shoes and everything, you know, honoring Molina and his legacy and and everything that he demonstrated about th- that. And you imagine the exact polar opposite of that, that would be Tino Martinez. <laughs> yes, that's a great way of explaining it. Um, all right. So with my final pick uh, in our draft, um, Ben, I need somebody to manage this just disaster of a team that I have here. And so um, with my final pick, I am going to draft uh, Oliver Marmol. Um, <laughs> and uh, Oliver Marmol um, is only in his second year of managing the Cardinals, but um he is well on his way to uh, being uh, the worst manager the Cardinals have had um, in an extremely long time. Uh, and honestly, if just by record, and I looked this up today and I was really pretty surprised where he's already moving on the all-time list. So, um, you know, he, he currently has a, a 516 winning percentage. So he's, he's hanging on in positive territory, but, um, I think, you know, by the end of this season, he's he's uh, got a chance to dip below uh, Joe Torre and uh, Solly Hemis, um, uh, you know, below 500. Uh, and that's going to put him in, in the pretty, uh, pretty bleak territory um, among Cardinals managers. Um, and of course, the Cardinals have been good for a very, very long time. Now, they were terrible. Um, you know, through uh, the, you know, uh, about the, you know, 1920s, you know, mid 20s or so, but they've been um, extremely good since then. And so, as a matter of fact, uh, if you, uh, you know, you know, we're, we're Marmol to dip below, uh, you know, those two guys um, who are currently below him of managers who have managed uh, more than two full seasons for the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, the only managers uh, since the 1920s, the only manager, I should say, since the 1920s, um, uh, with a worse uh, winning percentage uh, uh, than, uh, than Oliver Marmol uh, is actually Ken Boyer, um, who managed two seasons in the late 70s. Um, did have a, a worse record was a, you know, uh, but frankly, those were terrible teams. Boyer sa- sounds like was not a very good manager, but I'm not going to choose Ken Boyer because Ken Boyer was also a legendary Cardinals player. So let's be honest. Ken Boyer has some things in his, uh, you know, in, in his corner as well. I'm going to stick with Marmol who has, who uh, his, his record has been terrible. Um, I feel like personally has been pretty, uh, you know, pretty grading as well. Um I think as I look back over the history of Cardinals managers, I don't think there's any man more qualified to steer this ship of just absolute garbage that I've put together uh, than, uh, than Oliver Marmol. So he will be my final pick, Ben. Oh, that's a, that is a very good pick. And sticking with the Oliver Marmol incompetence theme, uh, <laughs> my final pick is Trace Barrera. Uh, now you may be thinking to yourself that this is this is not fair to Trace Barrera, and it might not be. Uh, but uh, let's look at uh, what he did uh, this year. They signed him as uh, catcher filler for the organization during the offseason. Very common. 
Uh, it was barely even a blip on my radar. Uh, when the Cardinals sign a catcher who is not going to be a major league catcher, I think to myself, huh, maybe I'll see that person catch a game at Sec Taylor Stadium this summer. And usually I don't because they're usually like a backup AAA catcher to like Yvonne Herrera or another Cardinals prospect uh, in the years past. Um, this year, uh, the Cardinals signed Barrera. And in AAA, he totaled 166 plate appearances in 40 games. He hit 214 with a 313 on base percentage and a 366 slugging percentage for a 310 weighted on base average, uh, which you may think isn't that bad, uh, but it works out to about 30% below league average because the Pacific Coast League has been such a good hitters league this year. So he was, he was a bad hitter, uh, virtually unplayable, frankly, uh, in AAA. But then what did they do? Uh, when Mosellock and Marmol knifed Wilson Contreras on the eve of the Chicago Cubs series uh, in early May, they pro promoted Trace uh, Barrera and carried three catchers for about a month. And do you know how many games he appeared in during that month, Ben? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, it was so I'm going to say three because I, I don't think it was zero. Uh, it was not zero. It was six. OK. Um, but then when you when you look at that, do you know how many uh, any? Now, by the way, when you say appeared, do you mean like he was visible on the uh, uh, Sports Midwest <laughs> camera? Like uh, like uh, Nolan uh, Gorman the, was giving Mar high fives in the uh, dugout and. <laughs> His name was given to the umpire as a player okay, who was okay, playing, but do you okay. know do you know how many innings uh, uh, so those six games consisted of? Oh, uh, I'm gonna say uh, nine, <laughs> seven and one third. Oh God! And two plate appearances. Fittingly, he uh, did not walk, did not strike out, did not get a hit, did not get on base. And so uh, his weighted runs created plus is negative 100, uh, and he is a zero win player because he is replacement level. Uh, he is a replacement level backup catcher who the Cardinals carried as their third catcher for a month, gave seven and one third innings in the field uh, while they uh, humiliated their starting catcher after failing in every way to assess what Yadier Molina was to the team, what they needed to do to replace him and communicate that to Contreras. And so uh, I have chosen Trace Barrera with my final pick because he, I feel more than anything else uh, that has happened this year uh, and more than any other player embodies the complete incompetence of the St. Louis Cardinals front office and uh, middle manager Ollie Marmol during the 2023 season. And so that is the final pick of our worst Cardinals in history draft. Whew. Wow. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there you have it folks. So, uh, you know, I think it was fun at times. I think it was not fun at other times, but uh, hopefully, <laughs> Hopefully it reminded us all that as rough as this season has been, uh, this is certainly not the only time uh, we've had uh, had some bad Cardinals teams and bad Cardinals players. Uh, somewhat fun to think back on those. 
Uh, ben, we do have a few uh, listener questions. Why don't we uh, Why don't we buzz through those here? Um, we uh, uh, first one uh, has to do with uh, offseason move comes from uh, Yamis Duncan. He says, "Let us assume Michael Gersh's goal of acquiring two starting pitchers comes to fruition. Do you consider the offseason a failure if both pitchers aren't obviously better than Michaelis?" By XFIP, Michaelis is a below average pitcher. His FIP is decent. His stat cast data is pretty mediocre. If you're going into next season with Michaelis projected as your first or second starter, have things truly stayed the same? Uh, I think so. If if you're not if you're not going to get two pitchers who are not demonstrably better, or at least don't, or you know, project to be better than Michaelis, right? Like things can go sideways, right? You know, everything can look good on paper and they can go sideways. But if we're sitting there in spring training and we're looking at, you know, Miles Michaelis and you're hearing them talk him up as a Dark Horse Cy Young Award candidate again, like some people tend to do in spring training uh, and how he's the number two pitcher on the staff, I, I think we the Cardinals have failed to meaningfully improve the team in the way that they say they want to by getting better pitching that induces more strikeouts. So I, I think that is a very fair uh, observation and a, and a useful way to look at it um, kind of through the prism. Cause you'll hear writers throw around terms like number two starter, number three starter, number four starter. I mean, I think Miles Michaelis, Ben, and you tell me what you think. I mean, he's probably a three or four starter going into next year. Right. So if you're if you're slotting him in your rotation above that spot, I, I think that you have failed to achieve what you said your goal was uh, as early as July, <laughs> you yeah. know, going into the winter. So I, I think that would be a failure. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think Miles Michaelis is a pretty like perfect sort of, uh, you know, number three type uh you know, pitcher, like, I mean, I think he's a, a real model of what, you, you know, a, a number three type pitcher would be, uh, you know, um, his, uh, you know, his, his kind of, you know, yeah, his, his stat cast uh, stuff is, is, pr- is pretty unimpressive, but he does, he gets a lot out of the stuff that he has um, that kind of plays that up. You know what I mean? So it's like, he's, you know, aspects of his game are a little kind of below average, other aspects are a little above average. And I think when it all just kind of floats to the surface, I think he's, he's basically right at about average for a starting pitcher, which just, again, would put him, you know, right in that kind of like number three type range. So I think it's kind of a good question because I, I, I like it because yeah, I think in an ideal world, you, he's your number three starter. And yeah, if you have two pitchers better than miles, Michaelis, um, I think you're in really good shape. And, and then I think you feel fine about having two pitchers that are worse than Miles Michaels. Like that sounds like a pretty good rotation to me if you can get to yes, that point. Definitely. Um, so, so yeah, no, I think that's a, I think, I think that's a, I, I hope they can get to that point. Um, I'm optimistic that they will acquire one pitcher better than Miles Michaels. Frank, I'd be surprised if they're aggressive enough to get two better than Miles Michaels, just based on recent, uh, you know, uh, recent examples. Uh, Drizzy Drutster asks, not as much of a question as to what you're expecting, uh, from Mason Wynn. Do you have comparisons of his profile to other former or current players? 
Yeah, you know, um, Ben, I am not, I, I gotta be honest, I'm not great at the like comp game. Um, and so I'm having trouble kind of having somebody come to mind. I mean, I can talk like, you know, skill set wise, I think in terms of what, what I've seen, and again, also caveating this with, um, you know, we're not necessarily prospect experts, although Wynn is definitely at the high end where I have certainly, I've seen him play in person. I've watched a lot more of him on video and a lot more of the numbers. So much more familiar with him than I certainly am with like some low minors guy. Um, you know, the the arm is like a, you know, 80 grade arm for sure. You know, that's his like just unbelievable tool. And the the defense really, really strong overall. I know there's been some concern at various times, maybe about the kind of defensive consistency. Um, you know, I think like good range and everything, but, you know, may, maybe a little of consistency, though my sense has been that that has basically ticked up since he's been uh, playing shortstop full time and not, uh, you know, kind of playing two ways. Um, uh, and then, um, you know, the, uh, you know, I would say kind of good hit tool and kind of, a, you know, average power, but like the, the power does seem to be ticking up a bit this year, which maybe is a bit of a kind of approach thing as well. Um, so, I mean, that kind of, and, 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 um, you know, pl definitely like plus speed too, not like plus plus like Victor Scott speed, but like plus speed. So I would say that's, I mean, that would you agree, Ben, that's kind of the, the toolbox we're looking at there. Um, yeah. I, I'm kind of having trouble maybe thinking of like, I'm trying to think of an exact, like, guy, do, do you have a guy in mind that you, you, it's, mind? it's, it's becoming increasingly hard. I, I feel like I should just kind of back up and say that overall comparing current players coming up to historical players has yeah. become more difficult because yes. the style of play yeah. has changed with the granular data and yes. the ability to measure components of your swing and your windup and mm -hmm. your spin rate, you know, yeah. all of those things. And so there are, you know, I, I find myself more and more kind of getting into Frankenstein comps where it's yep. like you're pulling. And I mean, the, the thing, when to me, like your, your upside for win is like Raphael for call with the, the Braves probably, yeah, um, that's, you, you know, that's, yeah, that's, no, that's very, actually, that's, that's a good one, actually. That's very imperfect, but just the, the athleticism. Yeah, and his arm strength is going to be better than anything any of us have seen right. at shortstop. Like it's, it's really when you see it, it's just there's, I I can't. There's no cardinal infielder that comes to mind. Like, yeah. you know, like Arenado has a very good arm, but it's still not in wins league. You yeah, know, like. And so it's, it's like, I don't even know, like, I mean, he's, he's Ellie De La Cruz with the arm, right? Like oh, yeah. that's yeah. the, that's the comp. Yeah. You don't, you, you don't yes. have other guys doing that because it's just not happened really. Yes. And, uh, and then, you know, the, but I, I, I view him just kind of with the explosiveness and the pop, but not like a ton of power. Yeah. If that makes sense where it's like, you know, I, I would be surprised if Mason went as a 20 home run guy. Right. But he might have a couple 20 home run seasons yeah. and, but he's going to hit doubles. He's going to use his legs. He's going to be electric and he's going to be a player who's a lot of fun to watch. And so my imperfect comp is probably going to be 
uh, Raphael for call on the Braves uh, when when he broke into the league is is going to be my comp. I, ben, I think that's actually a, a fantastic comp. I think just the athleticism, the strong arm, the style of play, and also just that for call for his era had a little more pop in his bat than you saw from a lot of shortstops. But but just like you said the style of play is so different now. So the kind of pop that for call had was very different from what it means to have pop in your bat now. And just right. the way that pitchers pitch now with the, you know, basically every pitch being designed in a lab to, you know, just uh, perfectly befuddle hitters and, and hitters, uh, you know, in, in retaliation, you know, having to, you know, design their swings in a very particular way to, you know, get on plane and do a very particular type of damage. The, the way every hitter is attacking the pitching that's coming at them is so different too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to, you know, to say, and of course, um, you know, guys are, I think more able now than ever to, to make adjustments. And so, yeah. you know, you see what Wynn is doing this season. He is definitely consciously um, hitting for more power this year, just with some doing some things with his approach, you know, for more power. Now, will that transfer over into the majors? Hard to say, because will they ultimately feel like that's the best approach for him just in terms of what he can do physically and et cetera, you know, that like whether or not it's what he can do physically, the organization and he may ultimately kind of move some of those dials one way or another. So that's just another thing that makes it kind of hard to say what to expect. But honestly, Ben, I think Raphael for call was a, a great, great comp there. Um, uh, Bronson asks uh, with six weeks to go in the minor league season, which prospects are you monitoring for a 40 man addition and protection from the rule five, assuming the list starts with the recently acquired Robursa and Kloffenstein. Um, have you thought about that, Ben? Uh, I've been kind of interested to see what happens uh, with uh, Will King, who they got uh, last year and were slotting for the bullpen. Um, and he's been injured all year. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens. I didn't even realize Kloffenstein was Rule 5 eligible because I, I will confess to our listeners, my Rule 5 preparation i usually look at it in terms of 40 man after the end of the qualifying offer kind of period and and then you know i see what they do because they will oftentimes you know make an aggressive move early in the off season that either creates that type of issue where there's a crunch on the roster or totally alleviates it you know mm -hmm. like and so with them stating that they, you know, want to add a starting pitcher, you know, depending on how they go about it, they could create, a, you know, more of a 40-man crunch, like if they just go out and sign two guys, right? Mm -hmm. um, or they could potentially alleviate that crunch by trading from players who are on the 40-man. And so um, it's one of those things where, and also historically the Cardinals are usually in a playoff chase, right? So I'm I'm much more interested in what's going on in the field. But this year I totally understand the early interest. But I usually sit back and wait just because uh it's it's one of those situations where, you know, I've looked at this, but then they make a trade, you know, on on November seventeenth or something. Yeah. And it's just and it's just like, oh, Whoever they want on the 40 man is going to be on the 40 man. You, you, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, 
and so it's uh um and also uh with them really only needing pitchers you know i i feel like uh we could see them trade from that position player depth on the 40 man yeah and it'll it'll just completely uh alter the way that look uh before they have to make those those choices potentially yeah, yeah and i i will say and, and and yeah i have not put much um consideration into this yet either ben but i i also think that you know there was a there was a period where this whole rule five thing became a little bit hotter because back when like the Padres took Luis Perdomo from the Cardinals and there were just, there was a, just a brief window of time there where there were some of these like aggressive rule five moves that teams were taking. Like, you know what I mean? Like we think we can pl- pluck a, a, basically a prospect away from a team. Um, but what you saw happen with so many of those guys, because you know, when you take that rule five guy, you've got to keep them on your major league roster. And and a lot of those guys, it it basically ruined their career, you know, because they they weren't ready for it. And so it's like, if it seems like that was kind of like a tactic that teams tried for a few years, but they kind of realized it doesn't work because you, yeah, that guy maybe is a prospect that is unprotected. So hypothetically you could take them, but the rule for what you have to do with them um, kind of destroys their development. So it's not really worth it. So in the last couple of years, you don't really see teams doing that. So I don't think it's as much because, and the thing is when teams were doing that, it, it became this thing where now, uh, you know, the uh, each team almost had to play defense with their 40 man roster and like who they're protecting. And I feel like it's almost reverted back to the old days of just like, no, we're going to just put the guys on our 40 man roster who belong on our 40 man roster. Yeah. And, and you're not at, at as much risk because all the other guys that don't belong in your 40 man roster, the other teams can also see they don't belong on their 40 man roster either. And if they put them on there, they're going to be, you know, stuck there and they're not going to develop and it's, it's, you know, not going to be a good situation. So I don't think it's as, I, I don't think we're in that, that window of time where you were going to have like a Luis Perdomo type situation anymore. I think that's a good point. Um, and uh, moving along, Greg Maturin asks, as working married adults with small kids, how do you find time to watch games? <laughs> well, the good news is uh, it's less critical uh, the second half of this season, Greg. Um, <laughs> um, no, I think it's an interesting question. That's a, this is a fun thing to talk about as fans, I think, because there's so many different ways to take in uh, games and everything. And I know one thing I've said, I think we both said before, that I enjoy so much about baseball and why baseball is truly my favorite sport and just such kind of an important part of my life is it really is just it's that daily ritual aspect of baseball. And, um, you know, the fact that it's always there and the fact that you can really kind of choose to take it in in so many ways. And so um, I know there are people who like religiously watch every single game, right? Like the TV is on and they watch from, you know, first pitch to final out every single game. Um, I'm going to come clean to our uh, listeners and let them know I do not do that. I do not watch every single game. Um, I, am, I, f- I follow every single game. And I, I generally watch or listen to, um, you know, some or if not all of, of, of almost every game, although I'll, I'm going to be honest, it's tapered off this second half of the season, Ben. <laughs> but um, so um, but I, I just feel like um, you've got so many great options. So 
um, you know, and also let's be honest, a baseball game is not something that demands your constant attention every single second. So I guess speaking for myself here personally, you know, um, probably majority of the time, um, I might turn it on on a TV, you know, in my house, um, you know, so it's it's on. And, you know, if I've got the freedom, um, I'll, I'll sit and watch, you know, all are part of the game. But it might also just be on that I can kind of, you know, keep an eye on it in passing. Um, you know, other times if I'm doing other stuff or other people in my house are doing other things, um, or if I'm just not interested in kind of focusing as much on it, um, I'll put the game on the radio. I, I listen to a lot of games on the radio or like if I'm in my car, I've got the MLB app so I can, you know, turn it on on my phone. So listening a lot of the time or like if I'm cooking dinner, I'll have it on, you know, be listening to it that way. Um, you know, and there's other times I might even just have the kind of game day up and I'm just sort of like following along um, that way or even just kind of checking in that way. So, you know, I feel like you've kind of got like a hierarchy of ways that you can, you know, watch, listen, follow, check in. And so I'll just kind of do like whatever's appropriate. But, you know, yeah, I don't like, you know, if my, you know, my kids are like in the room and like, you know, you know, dad, let me show you this, you know, thing that I've worked really hard on and I love you so much. And I want to show you this. I'm not like, you know, get out of the way, kids. Um, I've got to watch this uh, team in last place. Uh, you know, like Adam, Adam Wainwright's given up four runs this inning. I got to keep watching. So that's 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 the story on my end. Uh, ben, how about you? Uh, our kids are at the age where um, it's a little bit easier. Our our now our middle one. You know, he's going to bed usually before seven o'clock. So I, and this year it's been bad because usually when I come downstairs, they're already behind. Um, but uh, last night he went to bed particularly early. So I got to see all of the ugliness in Kansas City. Um, and then our youngest is not yet two months old. So she's just kind of, you know, still pretty uh, agreeable to whatever we're doing. Um, you know, if she's, yeah. if she's being held and not hungry, uh, and, and doesn't need a diaper change, she's okay. And then our oldest, uh, you know, he likes baseball. My wife likes baseball. Um, and so we'll, we'll usually have the games on if I have to do like yard work or something outside, I listen on the radio. Um, I particularly enjoy doing that on Sunday afternoons, which we will be uh, denied today when our listeners are listening to us instead. Um, and, uh, you know, during the weeknights, if I've got outside work, I'll listen. Um, and a lot of times, even if I've watched the game, I'll watch the MLB.com condensed game the next day just to jog my memory of what happened. And it's just kind of a nice distillation of highlights from each inning yeah. um, of what happened in the game. And uh, and then I'll show some highlights to our toddler because he gets really excited. He, he doesn't quite understand what's going on. It's just hit Cardinals hit. Yay. And he runs around the room. Yeah. Um, so like he still doesn't understand wins or losses. So he's very happy to watch uh, some of the Cardinal highlights each day as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and my uh, my boys are both fans. And so they'll there's times that they'll be interested and they'll want to come in and, you know, sit and watch with me as well. So that always helps and makes it easy too. the other thing I'll say is I really miss living in California because that West Coast time is like perfect if you're following a like central time zone team because so oh, many yeah so many of the games they'd they'd start up around like 5 p.m so like it, a lot of times it'd be like i was like 
coming home or getting home from work. And basically I'd be like starting to make dinner and I'd have the game on as I was making dinner. And then you'd kind of like watch the game as you were eating dinner more or less. And, you know, the game might end around like, you know, 7 PM or so. And so, but then you had like a whole evening, Ben, you could like, you could go to a movie or you could like go out for yeah. a walk. You like, you, you still had stuff to do. It was, it was lovely, man. So I, I, I do miss that. Oh yeah. I can't even imagine how nice that would be. Um, being a Midwesterner my whole life. Um, thank goodness for the pitch clock, right? Like yes. it's, it's made it much more manageable. Um, yes. yes, we all, we all are very, very grateful for that. So, all right. Well, um, thanks as always for the questions, everybody, and, and please uh, feel free to keep those coming and, uh, and please feel free to get weird with the questions or if there's any, um, anything just kind of off the, uh, off the spine you're interested in hearing from us over the last part of the season, as we said, we're definitely uh, interested in, you know, talking about some things uh, other than the, the nuts and bolts of this particular Cardinals team. But with that in mind, Ben, um, as we head forward into this next week, uh, is there anything in particular that, uh, that you're going to be looking for? Uh, well, what I'm, looking for, I'm going to tie to my uh, off-day recommendation. And my off-day recommendation is the STL Today post that Derek Gould wrote about uh, Matthew Liberatore's fastball after his start against the Rays, uh, where he had probably what I'm going to call his the best start of his career against Randy Arozarena, who, of course, the Cardinals traded for him, uh, and the Rays. And the article's about you know, his fastball and how they've been working to make it more consistent and easy to hit that velocity, which is a subject we've covered on this podcast quite extensively. And so it sounded like they had they had made serious headway and reached a breakthrough in advance of that start. So naturally, uh, I am going to be watching to see if that continues and where he's sitting with that fastball over the rest of the year. Uh, because if he is showing consistent mechanics, consistent velocity, and is able to use that slider and curveball to complement his fastball, I think, you know, you're probably looking at the the third starter, not the number three pitcher, but the the third starter independent of the two that they have said they're going to go acquire uh, for next season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you and I just had kind of an incidental conversation the other day about how odd libertor just seems to not be able to repeat his kind of physical actions to a degree that's really unusual for professional athletes just with his fastball velocity and everything else so it's interesting and hopefully yeah he can get it locked down but it, the plus side of that is it makes it makes me more optimistic that he actually could do this you know a lot of guys yes. it's like you, you very clearly see their ceilings but like libertor it'll just all, all of a sudden it's like oh today he's throwing like 97 98 right it's yeah. like you're, you're never gonna see like michaelis do that you're never gonna see jake woodford do that you never you know what i mean like these other guys it's like you see their ceilings because they're very consistent and they're you know what i mean <laughs> like so anyway um uh, so in terms of what I'm going to be watching for, well, one thing, you know, last week I mentioned I was going to be watching for when Mason Wynn would get called up. And I had this, you know, kind of suspecting that, you know, would it be around the time that they passed that date that he uh, would have passed rookie eligibility? Um, I suspect that date is August 19th. So that would mean 
um, actually probably around the time of our next recording. And I actually would think maybe this next kind of Monday off day, the day after that would, wouldn't surprise me if he came up after that in the event that that is the, the thing that they're holding him back for, which it may not be. And they may not even do it immediately after that, if that's the case, but I'm still kind of curious about that. But the other thing that I'm really watching for is, uh, uh, you know, I always enjoy, uh, Kyle Reese's gifts on, of uh, Twitter of uh, all of the kind of minor league goings on, but I've particularly been enjoying seeing all of these new player acquisitions and seeing what these guys are doing um, for the Cardinals. Um, in the last week, I was particularly enjoying watching a uh, uh, Sagesi and uh, Prieto, the, the two Brendan Donovans that they traded for kind of uh, trading home runs um, in, in the minor leagues, but it's just been interesting to see all of those guys they've acquired doing that. Um, and Ben, I guess you already gave us your off day recommendation. Um, you know, my off day recommendation, um, I think I recommended, a, I did recommend a Substack last time. I'm also going to recommend uh, Sam Miller's uh, Substack Pebble Hunting, which I know you've recommended before, but um, in particular, uh, one of his uh, posts from the last uh, week or so uh, was called The Angels in Perspective. Um, and it was a piece about how they've wasted Otani and Trout. Um, but it was kind of thoughtful and I thought was interesting about it is it wasn't kind of the usual like hand wringing like this is the worst run organization ever, etc. But he really got kind of granular and dug into, you know, the uh, the fact that like, you know, Otani's been good one year, Trout's been good another year, they haven't necessarily overlapped and looked at some of the things they've tried to do that haven't worked out, etc. And so um, it's not necessarily apologizing or making excuses for the Angels, but really just kind of does a good job of showing like how hard it is to build, uh, you know, a good team. <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, it was just, uh, I thought that was a good one, but his, uh, th that's always a good, a good read. So, so Pebble Hunting uh, is a good one to check out. Um, ben, that's all I got. Anything else you have for folks before we wrap it up? Uh, nope, I don't have anything else. I hope folks are in join uh the the dog days of summer as cool about to start so uh enjoy the rest uh, of your summer while it lasts and uh, we'll catch you on the next off day go, go, go.